You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Emil Anton, Doctor of Theology and Journalist of Vatican News Swami. Political Periscope You're in Vatican right now and uh, you've been to the funeral of uh, Benedict the 16th. Yes, actually at the moment I am in Rome. I'm just back from the Vatican. I'm in Villa Lante, which is a beautiful uh, Renaissance villa on the Giannicolo Hill. And we have wonderful views from here to the Vatican St. Peter's Church. This is the Finnish embassy to the Holy See. And it is also a residence for Finnish scholars. And I am staying here for a week to cover the funeral of Pope Benedict and also to finish a book project on Rome, um, guide book to Rome for pilgrims. So those are two projects I'm working with here in Rome during this week. And what can you say about the funeral? How was it? How was the ambience? How many people were there? Well, I just read now on the way back uh, just a Finnish news article that said 60,000, which seemed very little to me. I would have said that it was more, but, uh, but uh, I don't really have any official um, uh, competence or, or proof. Uh, but I have to say it was less than I thought. I, I thought it would be uh, more uh, full of people. So the St. Peter's Square was not full. Um, it was not like John Paul II, like the crazy Poles who put their tents on the streets. The Germans are not pious like the Poles. So it was less. But actually, there were some Polish people there with their banners. And, uh, but uh, let's say the atmosphere was very nice, uh, happy mostly. Of course, also very kind of devout and uh, respectful. So it was not like a carnival. Uh, they asked people not to put up like banners or flags. At the end, they did some of them. But generally, it was kind of low key, uh, as Pope Benedict himself wanted it to be like modest, uh, not too much of a party celebration, but uh, kind of humble, modest uh, celebration. But I think mostly still like with a deep joy, gratitude and happiness that he's he has reached his goal and uh, at the same time what was the most wonderful for me was just the experience of the universe universality of the catholic family like all the time in front of me going priests from africa or nuns from asia or you know poles spaniards italians whatnot and uh, i could speak a lot of languages and and uh, just enjoy that i'm part of a universal family this funeral was quite exceptional. It's the, well, not the first time, but uh, one of the three times in the history when the Pope Emeritus dies. So um, how different was it from normal papal funeral? Well, uh, I have never been to any papal funeral before, so uh, I don't have any personal experience. And, and uh, in general, I would say that Papal funerals are rare in any case. They're like, for most people, once in a lifetime experiences. Actually, now there was some talk that, who knows, maybe there will be a next papal funeral quite soon. 
because of Pope Francis' uh, condition, so who knows. Uh, but uh, just on the technical level, the prayers were a little bit different. Like uh, it's a different situation when the Pope dies and there's still a Pope. So it's not like sede vacante. So they had to change some of the liturgy uh, to tone it down a bit. Uh, but mostly it was similar to a papal burial. Pope Benedict the uh, Sixteenth was is considered today quite conservative, especially um, in relation to Pope Francis. Um, what do you think about it? Was it was he really as conservative as it is often presented, or um, maybe maybe not? Yeah, I really don't like this way of presenting him. Uh, first of all, because uh, when the modern media says conservative. Usually they think about uh, one or two issues related to sexual matters or something like that. Uh, but uh, there are like a million issues in the world and uh, you would have to look at Pope Benedict more widely than from this very narrow perspective of a few select uh, favorite issues of the liberal West, let's say. If you look at Pope Benedict's youth, He was a very progressive theologian at the Second Vatican Council. So he was one of the main forces behind the Catholic Church's renewal uh, to look differently at the modern world, at other Christians, at other religions. So the Vatican Council changed the Catholic Church's attitude toward other Christians, other religions, and the modern world to a more dialogical approach instead of a, a condemnatory approach. So Pope Benedict was very much behind that and he stayed, I mean, Joseph Ratzinger at that time, young theologian, he stayed faithful to his vision. He was always a very open thinker. I have done my doctorate on his theology of religions and interreligious dialogue. And I was very surprised at how open he was. For example, already in the 50s, even before the Second Vatican Council, he said that we just simply cannot believe that all Muslims go to hell, which was a normal attitude at that time, that outside the Catholic Church, everybody goes to hell. But Pope Benedict, I mean, Joseph Ratzinger, he said already in the 50s that this is just impossible to believe. And he he kind of uh, uh, developed a very open uh, theology of salvation, where he's very optimistic that the majority of men will in the end be saved. Of course, uh, he develops his uh, theology of purgatory uh, to kind of uh, deal with the problem. But anyway, there are many issues in which he was very much an open thinker. Uh, even actually in sexual morals, if you look at uh, his interview books, he's asked, asked about contraception. Uh, and uh, you will be surprised how pastoral and how flexible he is, of course, on the theoretical level and on the matter of on the level of principles. Uh, he's quite firm. But, you know, when Peter Seewald, the German journalist, asked him if, well, we have a married couple, they have this amount of children and they decide, okay, well, they end up using contraception, then should they think that they are bad Catholics? And Joseph Ratzinger says, no. And he says, these are not matters that you can just uh, decide on a theoretical level. You should talk to the confessor and things like that. So just some examples that he's actually a much more open thinker than what the short uh, kind of uh, media presentations portray him as. Also one of the topics that's very different from, um, I could call it conservative agenda, now is the suggestion that maybe there should be some global level governance body over the economy, the global economy. Um, he wrote it in one of the, his uh, encyclics. Uh, he wrote that there 
is probably need for something like this uh, to make the economy more fair uh, to help people in need uh, to redistribute the goods that is probably caritas in veritate is uh, social and cyclical but i have to admit that it's completely outside of my competence so i'm uh, a theologian a dogmatic theologian so so these kind of social and financial issues are completely out of my competence but but i'm sure you uh, I, I, it doesn't sound wrong to me so you you might well be right about that yeah okay so um you said uh, he he um he put forward this idea that uh, not only uh, Catholics, not only Christians uh, will go to heaven. Uh, so, and how was his uh, inter-Christian, uh, inter-Christianity uh, uh, Christianity, uh, dialogue uh, with uh, Orthodox Church, with uh, other, with, uh, with uh, Protestants? Yes, he was a very important theologian in both dialogues. So, first of all, he was a German, so he knew Martin Luther better than most popes or most Catholics in history. So he really knew Protestant theology quite well, especially German Protestant theology, and, um, and he engaged it uh, in many of his books. And actually, he liked Luther personally, uh, not everything he said, but I mean Luther, but the fact that Luther was a theologian who really took theology seriously as a struggle with God. Because nowadays, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with academic theology, if you study theology in universities, it's not really a religious business. It's it's a, a science in many universities in Germany and Finland also where I come from. It's kind of a, like a science that has nothing to do really with the supernatural. You just kind of study old texts and what different people thought and so on. So it's like a, a really secular thing. Um, but uh, for Benedict, that was wrong. And he thought that theology is about inquiring after the, the rationality of the faith. So he really liked Luther because for Luther, theology was really an existential struggle with God. So he sympathized with him and he sympathized with some of his basic um, discoveries like the mercy of God. Uh, so that salvation, for example, is not something we earn with our uh, good works, but, but something that we receive as a gift. And then, of course, uh, we enter into that um, uh, uh, life of God actively as well. Then with the Orthodox, he suggested that uh, we should not require from the Orthodox anything that was not believed in the first millennium. So that's pretty strong because the, we have had many dogmas pronounced after the first millennium, after the split. But he said that if we are going to unite, we should not require of them anything uh, that was not defined in the first millennium. So that was something kind of progressive that he suggested. Of course, the dialogue is still going on and we hope for full communion. He realized that it's very difficult on this side of history to reach this full communion. But he had some very close Orthodox friends as well and a very close relations with the Orthodox patriarch, as does Pope Francis now. So uh, in general, I think the, 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 the relations, the ecumenical dialogue went forward, although there are some uh, cases where, again, public opinion says that it went backwards on some particular cases. But in general, he was, for example, the one who negotiated the joint declaration on justification or salvation with the Lutherans. So he saved that document. Uh, so, so I think he was very important in ecumenical uh, dialogues as well as interreligious dialogues. Speaking about Germany, mm, I've seen today, I've seen this video from many years ago when Pope uh, Benedict uh, was in Germany 
uh, greeting German bishops and some of them didn't want to shake his hand. Uh, he was quite controversial in among German bishops, for example, but also among uh, Polish uh, clergy. Yes, uh, now I'm trying to remember that video that maybe I saw some kind of refutation that it wasn't because they refused, but maybe it was for some other reason, whether it was some kind of uh, sanitary or health reason that they didn't want to greet or something. I'm not sure about the video, but but it's true that in general, in Germany, he's very controversial, quite negatively perceived. Uh, I have heard stories of people having their doctoral dissertations rejected just because they quote Ratzinger even once. So you mention his name and your doctorate is rejected or, or the, your promoter, your supervisor says you have to take this quote out. So he's very much a persona non grata in German universities, which are much more liberal. And uh, yeah, so uh, even I, I was on a kind of a Ratzinger pilgrimage in his hometowns on his birthday that last April, and I found that there's none of his books are being sold. Nobody's read that, read, read them. So uh, it's quite interesting. It's like not a prophet in his own land. Um, yeah, tough, tough luck. It was like since the 60s, Hans Kuhn, the liberal theologian, became like a, a favorite of the media, and he controlled the media and, and uh, made the liberal public opinion to be against Ratzinger. So I think that was a big influence behind it. Pope Benedict kind of reintroduced or gave um, a bit more space for traditional liturgy, for um, for uh, trident uh, liturgy. Um, now Pope Francis seems to be quite uh, reserved towards it. Uh, do you think uh, those traditional um, circles uh, inside of the church uh, will accept it and will give up on uh, trident uh, liturgy or... Will there be some kind of conflict? Yeah, this is a difficult question from from um, already the decades after the Second Vatican Council, the Lefebvreist schism and the rejection of the new mass, and and um, uh, and then Pope John Paul II's attempt to uh, save parts of these people and creating the Society of Saint Peter. Then when Pope Benedict, who was always against forbidding the old mass, allowed then the old mass again, then especially in the United States, it spread a lot and a lot of parishes just turned like this overnight to become very radically traditionalist and kind of denying the Second Vatican Council. So now after this changed situation, Pope Francis needed to, to do something about it. It's not clear if he did the best thing because, uh, yeah, many groups will probably fight against it. Some people will, of course, obey and, and, and others will not. Uh, I'm sure Pope Benedict suffered because of this uh, change, um, yeah, because the, their preferences were different in this case. But um, uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, it's true that Pope Benedict had a kind of sympathy for the traditionalist. He really loved the old liturgy beautiful liturgy he had grown up grown up with in uh, Baroque Bavaria. So uh, uh, if you read his work, The Spirit of the Liturgy, you can see his, his thinking on the importance of the beauty uh, of the liturgy, not like, you know, rock masses or something like that. But yeah, other people have other preferences. Um, but yeah, it remains to be seen. It's still, still kind of an open question. But I think it's mostly something that touches like American circles. Uh, 
in the first place. I don't think it's that that big outside of there. You yourself, uh, you have very, um, I would say, unusual background for a devout Catholic, uh, because uh, your father is from Iraq. Uh, you grown up. Uh, you grew up in um, Finland, which is mostly Protestant country, with mm. a very small minority of Catholics. Um, so how how did it happen and uh, what uh, brought you to catholic church yeah thank you for the question uh, my father is indeed from uh, the catholic minority of iraq and uh, it is a very old christian minority uh, the christian church there is basically as old as christianity it is really there from the first centuries and in the villages they speak aramaic jesus's language and in the cities they speak arabic already uh, they were maybe half of the population by the time islam came there but then it went down and down uh, as islam was getting stronger throughout the centuries um, so my father was from this minority um, of eastern catholics from iraq and he came to finland because he had fallen in love with my mother my finnish mother in england and one of his requests was that the children would be baptized in the catholic church because he could bring almost nothing from his culture to finland with him and we were living we were growing up in in um, a very finnish environment otherwise so my mother agreed and so i was baptized in the catholic church we are at the moment 16000 people which is 0.3% of the population in finland of course minorities are usually a good place to practice religion especially for christians that christianity started as a minority and it is we can say at most at home as a minority it is stronger as a minority i think the identity is more clear um so that's what uh, my context is of course the lutheran church in finland is one of the most catholic lutheran churches or one of the most catholic protestant churches it is kind of a historic historical church with the bishops and sacraments and um very ecumenical so very positive very open very friendly to the catholic church of course more liberal for sure uh except that there are also some traditionalist movements inside the lutheran church who are close to the catholic church for other reasons like they reject women priests or same sex marriage or something like that so so anyway the relations are very good in in finland in general with other christians so so i've i found it a very nice very good environment fruitful an inspiring environment to be a catholic so let's sum up uh, with a question about pope benedict in finland how uh, what what was thought on or what is thought about him in finland yeah that's a great question actually uh it's very different depending on the circles so if you look at the mainstream media of course it has been uh, predominantly negative so the typical story is okay pope benedict resigned or he died he was known for the the the, the sexual abuse scandals and uh, for being very conservative because he didn't accept the uh, same sex unions so, and then that's the end of the story so that's all they say about pope benedict and that's like the the, the general uh, report on any pope uh well maybe different now with pope francis but um then uh, if you look at the lutheran circles it's a uh, very interesting and even uh, kind of a historic change that happened when Pope Benedict published his books on Jesus of Nazareth. So there is this Finnish movement of Lutherans called Neopietists who 
are traditionally very anti-Catholic. So they were the most anti-Catholic movement in the Lutheran Church and very anti-ecumenical and uh, thinking that the you know, union with Rome is something like you know, the apocalypse and the horror of uh, Babylon and things like that. And now when they read Pope Benedict's books about Jesus, this movement that used to be anti-Catholic, they have translated and published these books. So some of their people said, like, how can we be publishing the Pope's books? And the uh, leader said, well, go ahead and read the book. And if the Lutheran bishops wrote so well about Jesus, we would publish their books. But since the Pope writes about Jesus so much better than the Lutheran bishops, we publish this book. So that is something that made Pope Benedict's theology very well known in Lutheran circles and very well liked. Many people have said that he's like a Lutheran Pope because he uses the Bible a lot. He's really Bible-centered and Jesus-centered. And this is what brings the Lutherans and Catholics together to be Christocentric and, uh, and Bible-centric. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 